If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn again to Second Corinthians. We are going through a verse-by-verse exposition of this tremendous epistle. We are up to chapter 3 now. Last time, we focused on the impact of the new covenant upon our worship. And we tried to show you from the scriptures that because of the institution of the new covenant, our entire way of dealing and relating to God has changed. Our worship has changed. We don't have to go to priests anymore to offer sacrifices for us. We can do that ourselves. We can do it because our great high priest, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, entered the Holy of Holies. And he left the way open for us as priests to come after him. That's a new thing. Up to that time, the only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. But now, because of the establishment of the new covenant, we can go into the very presence of God. Now, beloved, do not take that for granted. Think of what happened in the old covenant, under the old covenant. If anyone went into the Holy of Holies without observing the strict guidelines that God gave, they would be immediately executed. Even the high priest had a fear of doing something wrong and being killed in the Holy of Holies. And just think, suppose he was killed in the Holy of Holies. How would anybody know? They'd have to wait to see how long before he comes out. So what they used to do, they actually had a rope that they tied to the high priest. And so if he was killed for doing something wrong or he wasn't prepared properly, then they would pull him out. They wouldn't have to go in. Now, that's why we are told, like we saw last week in Hebrews 11, we could come boldly or with assurance into the presence of God. God will not execute us. He will not condemn us. He will not judge us because he sees us in Christ. Tremendous thing. And so now, rather than having to bring animals, goats and sheep and so on, uh, every Lord's Day to worship, we can come with the praise of our lips. We can come with our prayer. We can come with our offering. And the most important offering, of course, is ourselves. That's why Paul says that I beseech you, therefore, brethren and sistren, that you present your body as what? A living sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice in those days under the old covenant used to be burnt up uh, completely when it was offered. But here in the new covenant, the sacrifices that we give goes on. It's a living sacrifice. That's why we are the sacrifice. We don't have to take one. We are. We don't have to go to a place of worship as under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, the only place that they could worship was in the tabernacle or the temple. But now we are the temple of God. We are the sacrifice. We are the priests. We are the temple. And God wants us to worship him in that fashion. And so that's why we want to give you more of an opportunity to share what God has done in your life, to pray so we could edify one another. And as the scripture says, we can encourage or provoke one another to good works. Now, that's what our focus last time. Now we're coming back to Second Corinthians chapter 3, where we will pick up for today. Now, this is quite a chapter. It's, it has a lot of things going on at one time. When I was in seminary, we were taught about preaching 
from what they call the big idea. The theory was, the concept was that in every passage of scripture, every chapter, every book, there was one big idea. And everything revolves around that. Well, when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I got a problem with that. I see a lot of big ideas here. So Dr. Haddon Robinson, I think you got to step aside for a moment here. And we're going to go looking at these different things. But I've given it some titles as we go along. For instance, I've given a subtitle, The Preciousness, Purity, and Power of the Gospel. The Preciousness, Purity, and Power of the Gospel versus the Powerlessness and Purity of the Preacher. Now, perhaps that verses might be give you the wrong idea because we're not in opposition here, but we're just going to look at these two things together in contrast. In verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives his resolve. In other words, because of what the blessing has been under and is under the new covenant, Paul says that he is determined to proclaim the truth of the new covenant no matter what, and nothing is going to stop him. Okay, remember, Paul is defending himself from the attacks of the false teachers in Corinth who were saying that he was not a true apostle and that he was only in the ministry for the money. Paul is going to deal with that here. And so in verse 1 of this chapter, he gives what I call his resolve, his commitment. He says, therefore, because of what we have under the new covenant, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, the new way is the new covenant. We never give up. Now, he's including the other apostles here, but this can also be seen as what we call an editorial we. He says, I will never give up in my ministry as the false teachers were trying to get him to do. He says, no, what the blessings we have under the new covenant is so fantastic. There's no way I'm going to stop ministering under this new covenant. That's his resolve. Then he goes on. Uh, in other words, but let me put it this way. He's saying, this is my paraphrase. I forgot I had this here. Since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. I think the King James Version uses that phrase, we do not lose heart. This version, New Living, says we do not give up. The idea Paul is going to go on and on and he's not going to be, he is not going to be discouraged. And the reason why is because in this covenant, God has done his part. God has taken the initiative to write this new covenant in our hearts. And I am going to commit myself to proclaiming this truth. I don't mind what opposition comes along. I will not stop, he says, proclaiming this truth of the new covenant, no matter what comes my way. And now he focuses then on the purity of the preacher, ministering with a clear conscience under the new covenant. You have to put this in context. Remember the false teachers at Corinth, they were there, in fact, for money and for themselves. They were promoting themselves. Paul is saying they were ministering still under the old covenant, but he was not. Here is how a preacher, a proclaimer of the truth, is supposed to behave and act and preach his message under the new covenant. He says, we reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. Now, you see... He is actually saying this is what the false teachers at Corinth were doing. They were using shameful deeds and underhanded methods. He says that's not him. That's not what a messenger, a preacher under the new covenant does. We don't try um, to distort, that is the word missing here, we don't try to distort the word of God. 
We don't try to alter or change the word of God. That's what they were doing in, Con- in Corinth. We tell the truth. Context means that he's proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the truth as contained under the new covenant. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. Paul is saying, I could, he's almost swearing, I could swear before God that what I am doing is doing it the way God wants me to do it. And anybody who is, who really wants to know the truth and are truthful will recognize that that's my ministry. No matter what these false teachers were saying, you know, if you're an honest person, that I am representing God accurately. Now today, my friends, we cannot say that's prevalent today. If you listen to your radio, your TV, TVN especially, you'll find a lot of this going on. Shameful deeds, underhanded methods, distorting of the word of God, starting the word of God. Let me give you one example here. You've heard of, uh, let's see, the idea that we are little gods. You've heard that teaching, right? And therefore we could proclaim things into existence. We can speak things into existence. That's a distortion of the word of God, but it's a truth, or not a truth, but it's a message that is pervading our TV screens and our, radio, and, our, and our radio. Let me give you an example of that right now. The little God's doctrine. All of the faith preachers teach that if you are saved, you are, in fact, a little God. Consider this exposition of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 from Creflo Dollar. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man, and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. Now, that's a distortion of the word of God. Get that? And that's a pervasive truth or being purported as a truth today. 
by these folk. And it's on and on. These people are using shameful deeds and underhanded methods to promote themselves. Here's another one. Look at me, say, 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 all, all of you. Say, there's power in me, power in me. To, speak life and death. to speak life and death. You call what you have. You say what you want. And I'm here to tell you, I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing, I am speaking something into existence. Amen. I'm speaking something into existence. If that sounds eerily like God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that's because it is. Dear friends, only God can speak things into existence. That is not an ability that you and I have. And we'll see as we go along that one of the fundamental problems of the faith movement is that the faith preachers blur what should be a very crisp line of distinction between God the Creator and us His created. They demote God to make Him look more human than what He is, and then they deify man to make us look a lot more like God than what we really are. Consider this from Gloria Copeland. Don't see yourself uh, pitiful, depressed, without, broke. Get into the Word. If you're having pro uh, financial problems, get into the Word until you see yourself prosperous. We saw ourselves prosperous before we got prosperous. Now, you may have seen that and you're wondering, well, Justin, what's so bad about that? She's just talking about having a positive outlook on life. No, it's something a bit... More serious than that, what she's talking about is something known as visualization. And visualization is a new age technique in which you visualize things with your mind. And when you visualize these things in your mind, they will then become physical reality. And this, by the way, is very, very similar to what Oprah Winfrey is teaching in this thing called The Secret. You've heard about Oprah Winfrey promoting The Secret, see a lot of nodding heads. Same kind of thing. Uh, and it, it, these cultic ideas will pop up in different places. They'll pop up in Oprah Winfrey and The Secret, and they'll pop up in Word of Faith and, and the contemplative prayer movement, the emergent movement, and it just, it's the same basic heresy. It just rears its head in, in different places. Okay, There's, it goes on a little bit more, but again, you see, the idea that they could speak something into existence is based upon the idea that they were created as little gods, and therefore they can do whatever God does. They go a little further. They're saying that we don't have to place faith in God. We have to place faith in our faith. Because when God created things and he brought something out of nothing, he did it on the basis of faith. And so we don't need faith in God. We need the faith of God. And once we get the faith of God, we can do what God does. That is the distortion of the word of God. Paul says he is committed to complete integrity in handling the word of God. He would never do anything like that. He says, I don't try to hoodwink anyone by distorting the word of God. Friends, I say to you again, under the new covenant, you have to be discerning. Because we still have a lot of people out there who are defrauding the people of God because of the mishandling of the word of God. This has to do with the purity of the preacher. Ministering with a clear conscience. 
We had a little clip on there, but we don't have time to go into it. Gloria talking about we, because we can speak things into existence, we can visualize things and make them happen, that we can control the weather. And, she, and that's right, she says all of us are weathermen, but we can go beyond it, we can control the weather. And she goes on to give us an illustration of her and her son going in a plane that her husband was flying. And she saw this um, uh, water spout coming up. And so she called her husband. Her husband is um, Kenneth. Kenneth. She said, honey, take care of the storm. So he just went and says, I rebuke you. I rebuke you. In the name of Christ, I rebuke you. Go back from where you came from. And she said, that little organ all of a sudden went whoop, 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 and went right back up. That's what she says. And she says, all of us could do that. But then she makes a strange statement. She says, now, we weren't flying in bad weather because we never fly in bad weather. Well, that doesn't make sense, eh? I mean, if she could do away with the weather, she should be flying anytime she wants. Right in one sentence, she distorts the whole thing. It's amazing. But the point is here, discernment, handling the word of God correctly. And Paul is saying that he was doing that, but the folk at Corinth were not doing that. And then he goes on now to talk a little bit more about the condition of those who do not understand, who do not understand the truth of the new covenant. Remember when we talk about the old covenant, there was a veil over Moses' face and the people couldn't see the glory and so on. But he's bringing that up again. He's saying, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. What he's saying here is, I preach the word so clear that the only people who cannot understand it are those who are unsaved and on their way to hell. That's what he means, who are perishing. He says he preaches the word with clarity so it can be understood. The only people who cannot understand the message I preach are those who are on their way to hell. That is what he's saying. And he handles the word accurately and with properly. Verse 4 says, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And I want you to tie this in with the teaching that we are little gods. Where did this idea come from about men being gods? It came from Satan. You remember in the Garden of Eden, it says that the reason why God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because you have knowledge and become just like him. Right? And that's where that teaching comes from. That's the only place it comes from. It comes from Satan himself. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. In fact, in some who say they do believe, he's caused them to believe that they are gods. These individuals who have not yet come to Christ, who hasn't had the light shine on them yet, they've been blinded by the enemy, the enemy of the enemy of the triune God who is Satan. They've blinded the minds. And he says, they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. Remember last time in the last chapter, we seeing that when we go into the truth of the new covenant, we don't have a veil. We can see Christ in all of his glory through the word of God. The unbeliever cannot do that. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ. Notice now, it isn't saying the cross of Christ, not that that's insignificant. 
but his focus is on the glory of Christ. In other words, the way Christ now appears before his Father, who is the exact likeness of God. The unsaved cannot appreciate the true uh, nature or character of God. It's just impossible. Only those who have been enlightened by the Spirit, the Spirit of God can do that. This is Paul's point here now, the need for this light to shine into our hearts. He goes on in verse 5, where he comes back now to deal with the charge that he is only in the ministry for the money and he is not a, he is not a bona fide apostle. He says, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves the way that people in Corinth were doing. We preached that Jesus Christ is Lord, not ourselves is the implication. And we ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's saying we preach Christ, not self, as Lord. And we regard ourselves as your slaves because of that fact. And it's important to see here that this word servant is really the word slave. They're talking about a master-slave relationship. And these individuals in Corinth, the false teachers, were preaching in such a way that they were encouraging the Corinthians to take care of them. They were the ones who needed to be taken care of, as a lot of preachers are doing today. They don't preach in order to magnify Christ as much as to magnify themselves. You will see today, and this is a broad statement, but I think you'll bear out, that most of the folk who distort the word of God are living luxurious lives. And they're doing that from the money that people who are hoodwinked sent into them. You see? Paul did not preach to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ. That's the truth he's trying to place here. And this is what we need to do all the time. This is the reason why Paul is going to go into another direction right now. Well, not another direction, but to bring something else up as to the reason why uh, God uses insignificant people to glorify himself. This is what he says in verse 6. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God. Notice again, the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. Remember, as we looked at the chapter last time, the more we get into the word of God and allow the word of God to get into us, the more we can see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we go from glory to glory as we learn more about him in scripture. The unsaved, the unbeliever does not have that privilege because the light has not shone into their hearts. Now what Paul is doing here is going back to creation. And he's using the events of creation as symbolic or a type of how regeneration takes place. The same way when God uh, came on the scene as it were. The earth was without form and uh, void the scripture says. And then God said what? Let there be light, and there was light. That's the same spiritual condition of the unsaved. They are darkened in the spirit. They are without light. And the only way light can be shone in their hearts if God brings it about. Where God is able to create something out of nothing. This is the need for the regenerating work of the spirit of God. The unbeliever does not see this because the light hasn't shone upon them yet and it hasn't shone upon them yet because Paul says Satan has blinded their minds 
what is he blind, blinded their minds with? Well, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you will talk, you will hear Paul talking about strongholds. This is another area where a lot of people misstate the word. Talk about strongholds. A lot of people interpret that as strongholds of the devil and demons. That's not talking about that at all. He's talking about philosophies, way of thinking, doctrine, teachings that have crowded into people's minds. And you cannot get into their minds because of this false teaching. You see, but when the light shines in through Christ, all of that is removed. He goes on verse 7, he says, We now have this light shining in our hearts. Paul is talking about himself now, is true of us as well. But he says he has this light, this light that brings life and light, illumination, is in their hearts. Remember, the new covenant is written on the heart, not on tablets of stone. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Now this is where Paul brings out a startling contrast here to show that the weakness of the container stands in contrast to the value of the contents of the vessel. In the days of the scripture, in in, uh, New Testament days as well as Old Testament days, people did not have safes as we have today. We could buy a safe, well, you know, a heavy thing or lock it up and stuff like that. So they used to use jars to put very valuable things in, to be kept uh, and buried, as you know. Well, Paul is saying that's exactly what God has done in, in, in regards to the new covenant. This tremendous treasure, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, this tremendous message of glory has been placed in earthen vessels. That's you and me talking about not just our bodies, although that is talking about, but ourselves as persons. Compared to the glory of the message, we are nothing. It's comparing something that is extremely expensive with something that is worth nothing at all. Now, why would God do that? Why would God take such a valuable message, such a priceless message, and put it in clay jars? Something that is easy broken, something that is easy destroyed. Well, first of all, be sure to look at the passage. This treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the treasure. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That actually is the message of the new covenant. We can get right into the very presence of God. We can know who God is in Christ because of the new covenant now. All of the external things have been done away with. Everything that portrayed or served as a symbol or as a picture of Christ has been realized. Christ is here now. And the new covenant in his one message is that. Jesus Christ is here. And therefore, all of the animal sacrifices, all of the pictures, they're finished with. You don't even need to talk about them. Because we can look at Jesus Christ himself. So Paul is given the idea of strong treasures in weak containers. Magnificent treasures in insignificant vessels. That's all that we are. The only thing that makes us of any use in the world is the fact that we have the message of the gospel. That's it. All right. 
Now, why did God go about doing it this way, putting such a priceless treasure into such inexpensive vessels? And there is a divine reason for putting this great treasure in a fragile container. Notice what Paul says, verse 7, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, he says, you know, the best way that God could demonstrate that we have nothing to do with the power of his or the glory of his message is by using insignificant vessels like us to put it in. Because when the message is seen, right away we will know what. It isn't our power that's doing it, but it's the power of God. This makes it clear then that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. When we say great power, the power of the gospel to transform lives. Take the illustration that um, Priscilla, thank you, that Priscilla just gave about, I got it. It wasn't because of Priscilla's bright picture that caused this young woman to get that. It was the enlightenment of the Spirit of God. It is only the Spirit who can really teach us spiritual truths. You see, it is God who brings that to light, not us. We can do nothing for that. That's why the praise, the glory, has to go, have to go to God. Someone has said, and I like this, our weakness is the only stage on which God can display his strength. I like that. Our weakness is the only stage on which God can display his strength. Now, I have been learning this message in a real vivid way this past year. I'm telling you. In fact, the only reason why I'm even here today preaching is because of this fact. That it is God himself who's doing the work in my life. It isn't because of me. It isn't because of how strong I am. Because I'm very weak. But it's because of the power of God in us. Amen? Now, Paul goes on to reveal another truth here. Basing his teaching on this principle. And this is what he's going to be saying in the next few verses of this chapter. Dying to self reveals the life of Jesus. In other words, the more we get rid of ourselves, the more Jesus comes into play. Like John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's a tremendous divine principle of a victorious Christian life. Letting Christ be seen in us. But that means that we then have to disappear from the scene. And that's what we don't like to do at times. And so Paul goes on now to demonstrate in his own life that the power of God prevails in the midst of difficulties. And that's what I was thinking about this morning. Here we are, all of our designated hitters couldn't be found. Right? All of our designated hitters couldn't be found. We even went to the bench and some of them couldn't be found. They sick, right? But then God steps in anyway and supplies his own hitters. Amen? This is what it here. The power of God prevails in the midst of difficulties. First he says in verse 8 that he can have victory over external pressures no matter what they are. He says we are pressed on every side by troubles but we are not crushed. Agree? Now see I could have gotten really upset this morning with all of this. Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? What is the devil doing and all that kind of stuff. But listen we are pressed on every side by troubles, 
but we are not crushed. No matter what the external pressures are, Paul says, to him as an apostle preaching the truth of the new covenant that talks about the glory of Jesus Christ, he says, regardless of what come from anybody, anywhere, I still will not be stopped in my mission. We are not crushed. Then he goes on about internal pressures too, though. He says, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Now, this is an interesting passage, because in the Greek, the word perplexed and despair are the same word, it's the same word. But the first word is used in a sort of a uh, limited sense. In the second usage, it's gone to the extreme. In other words, he's saying, I have, I'm despaired, sometimes I despair, but I am not to the point of absolute despair, is what he's saying. Um, no matter what kind of problems, pressures I face internally, I don't give up, is the idea. Now, you have to think about Paul at this time. Paul was facing all kinds of pressures from the government. He's, he's in jail. He's experiencing problems from the Judaizers, his own people. All kinds of pressures he is feeling. But he says, he's still not driven to despair. I won't give up. This does not lead me to commit suicide. He has victory over internal pressures because of the power of his message. Then he goes on. He also has the permanent protection. He says in verse 9, we are hunted down but never abandoned by God. Hunted down, but never abandoned. God is always there for him. No matter who is after him, no matter what the problems may be, whether the problems come from friends, family, whatever, he says he knows that God is always standing by him. He has permanent protection because of this. And then he has what I call persistent resiliency. He says in verse 9, we get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. In other words, we could get punched to the ground, but boy, we jump right back up. We never knocked out. We knocked down, but never knocked out. I call this resiliency. You keep coming back. It's like when you're in the spring. You knock down, he comes right back up. You knock him down, he comes right back. You don't let pressures bring you to the point of giving up on this precious message here. So I put it this way. Resiliency is the ability to bounce back and keep on going, no matter what the difficulties or problems may be. And so he starts to develop now what I call a divine principle. Death to self leads to life of Christ being seen. Verse 10. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in us. He's making a principle here. Without death, there can be no resurrection. He's adding sufferings onto this that leads to death. And so, the victorious Christian, the Christian who is experiencing victory in his life, reproduces the death of Christ in his life. Why? So that he could experience his resurrected life. This is what I call the exchange life. When Christ really comes to live in us in a very personal and practical way. All right? But it goes through suffering. Paul is trying to show that his suffering 
which may lead to his eventual death, through all of this, Jesus Christ is only going to be glorified through what happens to him. Because that's the way God works out things in our lives. That's why I like to say that some of the most severe trials in our lives at the point where God's have the greatest victory in our lives. The time that we have the greatest trouble to dif- difficulties in our life, that's when God wants to step in and show that it's through your weakness that I can show my strength. But if we think we can handle it, then God has pushed aside. You see? That's why I remember when I was going through my experience sometimes, I didn't feel too good at times. And... Um, I would say that to myself, you, know, you don't feel good today, self. You don't feel good to yourself. And I says, well, you know, the Lord can still revive me. He can still give me the strength that I need to go on. And several times what the doctor would say to me, and I like what he would say, I, I would say, doc, I got the pain here today. I said, I get this every now and then, but I don't know whether I should call you or not. He says, well, don't call me. He says, because that's a part of the process. And every time I called him up, that's the only answer he gave me. That's the part of the process. But I say, God, it ain't take away the pain. The pain's still there. He said, well, that's a part of the process. It'll soon be all over. He gave me one year. That's three weeks away, or two weeks. I told him, if I get any more pain, I want my money back. Verse 11 says, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus. So notice now, here's the reason why. So that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. See, what he's trying to say here, the weaker we become in ourselves, the stronger Jesus Christ becomes in our lives. Because we become more dependent upon him. And there's no doubt that is so true. When you come to realize how weak you are, that's the time you put all of your trust in him. That's the truth here. And this is, a, this is a divine principle, a universal principle. If you seek to save your life, Jesus says in Mark, you will lose it. If you lose it for his sake, you will know his life in you. You will know his life in you. In other words, you will know his resurrected power in your life. So the principle here is that the victorious Christian reproduces the death of Christ through his sufferings, through his difficulties, as we go through it. Verse 12, so we live in the face of death. Paul was always living uh, with the expectation that he could die, he could be killed. But notice he says, this has resulted in eternal life for you. In other words, his suffering and perhaps his death would be life to these people. Paul believed his own sufferings were a means through which God could minister to the Corinthians. As Christ had brought life to others through his suffering and death, so Paul's suffering with death at work in him was a means of causing spiritual life to be in the work of others. So this is a divine principle here. And I wish I were able to shout it out and holler it to you. But this is a divine principle here. As we face sufferings and death, Christ, his life becomes evident not only in our life, but in the life of others as well. Tremendous truth here. He goes on to show why he is so steadfast in his preaching, because it reveals his conviction, the truth of the word of God. He says, we continue to preach. Why? 
Now, put this in context. We continue to preach in spite of being stoned, in spite of being beaten, in spite of being ostracized by my people. We continue to preach the truth. Why? Because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believe in God, so I spoke. Why did the psalmist spoke? Because he believed God. That's faith, by the way. Faith is believing what God says. That's it. Faith is believing what God says. And because Paul believed what God says, he says that he had a conviction and he would not stop preaching the truth. This is also true of the other apostles. Why didn't they stop preaching after Jesus was crucified? Why didn't they stop because they were convinced that Jesus Christ was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was the Messiah. And it was that truth that caused them to continue on in proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the same thing here. We continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believe in God and so I spoke. So faith is believing what God says and moving out on that. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 14. We know, notice the word again, this is conviction. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. Paul was convinced of this. No matter what problems or difficulties he faced in proclaiming the truth, that even if he was killed, that he would be raised. And because of his ministry, they would be able to stand before God perfect. This is what he talks about in Ephesians, talking about husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, husbands, this is a command, this isn't a suggestion. So that he might sanctify her. Now, here's the reason now. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. And that's what Paul saw his ministry as. Purifying the church in preparation for presenting the church to Jesus Christ. Notice, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what Paul's ministry was in preaching the new covenant message to purify the people of God so that he might present the church without spot before Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing now through his servants and through his word. He is washing and cleansing us so that we might be presented before him as a spotless bride. Paul mentions this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll come to this later. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealous, for I betrothed you to one husband. Notice, so that, Christ, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And how was he going to do this? By presenting a pure message, by being a pure preacher of the word. We, need, we have a pure message. But the power of that message can only be experienced if it is proclaimed by pure preachers who don't distort the word of God. 
This is what God uses to cleanse and to purify his people so that we might be presented before him spotless and without shame. That's also the purpose of this mess of our ministry. You'll know that we have as our motto, Colossians 1, 28, 29. It's the same truth. This is what it says. So we tell others about Christ or we proclaim Christ. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. Why? We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. Paul says, that's why I work and struggle so hard. Depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. See, that's what it's all about. We have a tremendous message, a wonderful message. But it's in a weak vessel. It can only be manifested when the vessel is broken. You remember, um, you remember the story of Joshua. He went to the first city in the new land, promised land, city of Ai. Remember that? And you remember how they, the walls were broken down? They walked around. Well, no, that's not the one I want. I want another one. I want the one with um, who? Yeah, Jericho. Who's the guy that they had the lights and they had the burst of lights? Gideon. Gideon is the one I want. And you remember, uh, it had three hundred men, right? And uh, they said, "I want you all to walk around here." It's in the night, of course, and uh, at a certain time, he wanted them to what? To break the jars. Why? So the light will shine forth. That's the picture he's presenting here. The only way that the light of the gospel is going to be able to be effective being used in weak vessels is that these vessels have to be broken. These vessels have to be broken. And when they're broken, then the glory shines forth. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 15. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. It's all for the glory of God. The more people who are exposed to the new covenant message and the glory of Christ through that message, the more God will be glorified. That's what Paul is saying here. This underscores the selflessness of Paul's ministry. It was for the benefit of others under the glory of God alone. So the divine principle, again to repeat, is the death to self releases the life of Christ. This is what I call the exchange life. The jar must be broken for the light to shine through. I don't know if any of you have read the life story of um, Guy to India. First missionary to India. Not Come on, you all should know. I know, but I can't remember the name. Anyway, there was a book written on his life story. Care, no, not John. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. The life story of Hudson Taylor. You haven't read it? Please read it. There's a chapter, and I think it's called chapter 6. And he calls it the exchange life. Reading that chapter in conjunction with Ephesians 6 and John 15, 
transformed my life as a young believer. He goes on to say that Jesus Christ is not only his is not only the vine to him, but he's the branches, he's the leaf, he's the soil, he's the root, he's everything. And it's not until we realize that Jesus Christ is everything that we can experience what he calls the exchange life. Because we realize that we can do nothing of ourselves, it's only Christ. Everything is of Christ. Everything. Everything. That's what he's talking about here. The jar must be broken for the light to shine through. Now sometimes that breaking takes takes us through some rough experiences sometimes. Because some of us are not as easily broken as others. You know? Sometimes you can break something, uh, you can break a lump just by hitting it. Other time you gotta use a hammer or a crowbar or something. But in, until that is broken, and sometimes God uses all kinds of difficulties to break us in that area. But until it is done, the power of Christ will not be seen in our lives. But when this does happen, happening, then the, what I call the victorious or the conquering Christian experience the resurrected life of Christ. Then we will know what it means when it says that we only live for him and not for ourselves. Verse 16. This is the kind of perspective that Paul has as a preacher and he needs us to have. He said, this is why we never give up. Notice that. We never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. The physical body is deteriorating. But as we apply these truths of the new covenant to our lives, the inner man, who we really are in Christ, has been renewed every day. This is where we go from glory to glory. And the only way we go from glory to glory spiritually is for our flesh, our humanness, if you want, to go less and less. Verse 17, he says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. I don't mind how tough, how difficult the situations you might be facing right now. I don't care how big they look to you compared with the glory that will be revealed. They're nothing. They're insignificant. That's what he's saying here. They produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. That's why I'm waiting very patiently for this one year to be up. Verse 18. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. You see, that's what I was trying to do this morning when everybody I called, we weren't there, gone away, gone fishing or whatever it is. Boy, nobody is there. How in the world are we going to have a praise and worship service? So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. We see the unseen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. That is the new covenant perspective. We live today in light of that day. That's what we're saying. Our vision, our view has to be on, on the glorious Christ, not on the troubles we face. And no matter how weak our bodies may be, no matter how 
uh, difficult things may be for us, when we are living as living sacrifices to God, and we realize that we are just holders of the light and not the light, and we submit ourselves to the power of God in our lives, then he works powerfully in everything that we do. Everything that we become involved in is a whole different story now because it's being lived out under the aspect of the new covenant. Christ living in us, not some outward instructions, but Christ living within us. The power can only be released as these vessels, these jars of clay are broken before him. And that's what he's working in all our lives in different ways, to cause us to be broken so that his light may shine. And the truth of this is that when whoever the light shines upon, they receive the new life as well. And God is glorified. God is glorified. Because we know that it is not us who's doing it, but it is the power of a glorious Christ who lives within us. Friends, that's the new covenant perspective. Which covenant are you living under today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that Christ lives within us. And thank you that as we gaze upon the word, we reflect upon the word more and more, we too can go from glory to glory as he is exposed to us through that word. Cause us, we pray, to be light bearers in a way that the light will be seen and not the lamp. We just pray, our Father, that we might experience this exchange life where the power of the resurrected Christ is always experienced in our bodies as living sacrifices. And all of God's people said, Amen.